Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. And here we are again in the Mizrahi Bet Midrash, Mizrahi Shul, and we continue with Bereshit Perak Kaf Aleph Pasuk um, Tet Zayin. Sorry, Tet Vav. So last week, we started this episode of the sending away of Hagar and Ishmael, and we read in Pasuk Yud Dalad that Hagar Telech Teta Bamidbar Beersheva, she went and she got lost in the desert of Beersheva, and Rashi said, It doesn't mean she got lost, it means she returned to the idols of her father's house. And there's a reason why I recall that, because as we go into Pasuk Tetvav, it says, The water got finished up from the flask, and she threw the boy under one of the bushes. So we already know that he was not well. Rashi said that's why he had to go on her shoulder and not walk. <coughs> and now we're told they've run out of water. And Rashi says on the words, It is the way of ill people to drink a lot. Why does Rashi need to say that? So I think the answer is, uh, it's already a little bit surprising that Abraham gave them water and bread and nothing else. And Rashi already commented on that in Pasuk Yudalad. And he said, the low Kesef of Zahav, he didn't give them gold and silver. And then he gave an explanation why. But it would be even more strange if Abraham Avinu did not give to his own son enough water to last for the journey. So the question that we need to answer is how can it be the water ran out. Now, you might think, well, if she got lost and she journeyed much further than she needs to do, she being Hagar, that is why the water would have run out. But we can't have that explanation because Rashi himself, as we just saw, said on the words, in it doesn't mean she got lost. It means she went back to her idolatrous roots, but didn't get lost. Therefore, we need another explanation of why the water ran out so quickly. So Rashi says, It's the way of ill people to drink a lot. And that, and we know that uh, Ishmael was ill, and that explains why he drank more than Abraham would have expected him to drink. And that would explain why Abraham gave them enough water for a journey, and yet it ran out. I would suggest that is what Rashi is doing. So now we come on to Pasuk Tet Zion. Vatelach, she went, Vateshev, la, and she sat for herself, Mineged. So Rashi's going to translate the word Mineged. Let's go straight to Rashi on the word Mineged, Merachok, from a distance. The word Neged means opposite. What does Mineged mean? So Rashi tells us it means from a distance. And then the Pasuk continues, Harcheik, commit Tachavei Keshet. A distance, so I'll tell you in advance what Rashi says, Mitachavei Keshet means two bow distances, bow shoots. So as far as you can throw a bow, uh, throw an arrow from a bow, twice as far as that. Ki Amra, because she said, Al Ereb I do not want to see the death of the child. So she's at a distance. For Teshev Mineged, 
and she sat at a distance, and she lifted up her eyes and wept. So, what is going on here? So Rashi's got a lot to say on the word keshet, and says Rashi, tichot. It's two tichot, v'hu loshen yiriat chetz, and that is an expression of yiriat chetz, which is the shooting of an arrow. Just one moment here. Okay, done. Yiriat uh, chetz is the shooting of an arrow. So, um, so she's two arrow shoots distance. I did see one suggestion that she might be worried that the child who is an archer, uh, well, we're about to know that, um, is ill and delirious and maybe he's going to shoot an arrow. So she wants to be two arrow lengths distance so she's not going to get hurt, maybe. So Rashi says, That's an expression of shooting an arrow. So why two shoots? That's the minimum number of a plural. So kemetachave is plural, so the minimum is two. So now we know that it means loshen yiriat, and it's plural, so that we assume it's two, kishtei tichot. Then he says, beloshen mishnah. We find this word, or this root of kemetachave in the mishnah. Actually, it's a brighter in Sanhedrin ben Vav Omen Aleph. Shehetiach beishto. Now, it's an odd use of the expression, and it means something in particular. It means a man had relations with his wife. And the word shehitiach is the word that is used. Interestingly enough, it's in the Gemara in the context of improper behavior. And it's about somebody who has relations with his wife in public, uh, or more or less in public. And he is to be flogged. He gets malkut lashes for that, even though that's not actually prescribed in the Torah. It's like an extrajudicial punishment. And maybe this word is used. Uh, well, let me read on a little bit further. Why is shehetiach beishto a reference to somebody having relations with his wife? Al shem shehazera yorekechets, because the seed shoots out like an arrow. Okay. It just occurs to me, and I, I haven't seen the Roshanim on this, but maybe because we're talking about a very sort of coarse and vulgar act um, to have the, to commit that act in public. So maybe the Kamara uses a coarse and vulgar expression. Just, just my thought. The, why does Rashi um, bring as proof text for what Shehetiach means an obscure use in the Gemara? You would have thought he would bring a proof from somewhere else in the Tanakh as he normally does, but he can't because with a quick glance at the concordance, I concluded that it, it, this word, uh, this root, tet, chet, hey, um, is a, let me see if I get this right, hapax legominum. What is a hapax legominum? Well, it's a fancy phrase that people use to show off. And it means a word that only appears once in the entire text. It is one of those words that only appears once in the entire Tanakh, here. So in order to prove what it means, Rashi can't find another Pasuk in the Tanakh to show what it means. So he goes to the next best thing, which is the Gemara. And he finds it there. And he has to explain why it's used in a sense, which does sound rather different, but it's connected to the idea of Yoret, meaning shooting. So that's what it means. But then Rashi says, there's another grammatical problem that you might notice. He says, if you say, Hayalo lichtov keshet, it should have written kamatachei keshet. The root is tet het hey. And when that turns into a construct in the plural, that should be 
well, the mem's not part of the root, but tet, chet, yud. And we've got an extra vav stuck there. Kamatachave. What's that vav doing there? Grammatically, it shouldn't be there. So he says, don't worry. Because mishpat havav It's the way, literally, it's the law of a vav to enter into here. In other words, this is an obscure grammatical construction. And sometimes you get a vav there. Now he's going to bring a proof text. And he says, kamo in the clefts of the rock. Um, yeah, there was an equivalent use in yesterday's Haftorah. Here it's quoted from Sher Sherim, but it's also there in Avadja. So again, uh, it should say Chagei Hasela, but it says Chagvei with an extra Vav. Migazerat, and that comes from the root of the same word which is used in the following context, Vahita Admat Yehuda Lemitzrayim Lachaga. So, which means that when Sancheverev uh, attacks Yehuda, that will be to Mitzrayim as a, you can translate it as terror or breakup. It's somehow connected to the idea of a cleft in a rock, which is the rock breaking up. So it will be for the people of Egypt as a chaga, something to break them up. So why does Rashi bring that pasuk? Because to show that the root is chet gimel aleph, and the plural of that would be chet gimel yud, the aleph would drop out, and you wouldn't expect the vav but in that Pasuk in Shirashirim, there is the Vav. So that justifies why there is a Vav in our case. It's the same obscure grammatical construction. And then just to um, uh, rub it in, he brings another proof for the same root that he's using for about this clefts of the rock, the root uh, Chaga. He says, It's talking uh, to Pasuk in Tehillim, which talks about um, the waves um, rising and Yachogu, they will crash and break um, uh, like clefts of the rock and they will move like a uh, drunken man who like crashes all around. So again, you see the same root, Chet Gimel, the Aleph has dropped out. But again, proving that the plural should be Chet Gimel Yud and yet we saw it was Chet Gimel Vav Yud. And then he brings another example, different root, the same phenomenon of this Vav appearing. He says, V'chein Katzvei Eretz, another passage from Tehillim about the ends of the earth. And again, it should be Mikazerat um, Katzer. It comes from the root of Katzer, Kuf Sadi So the plural should be Kuf Sadi Yud. The plural construct should be Kuf Sadi Yud. But in fact, it's Kuf Sadi Vav Yud. Okay, and that is all to explain the Vav in Kermitachave Keshev. Then Rashi says on the words, Vateshev Mineget. And he says, Kevon Shakarav Lamut, since he drew near to die, Hosifa the Hitrachek. She added to distance from him. What's going on? What's going on is this, that if you look carefully in the Pasuk, she moves to, uh, she sits at a distance twice. From the beginning of the Pasuk, she sat at a distance. And then it says, it repeats, and then it says, she lifted up her voice and cried. We'll come back to that. So Rashi has to explain the repetition of a Teshev Meneged. It's Mamish, the same words, repeated. So Rashi says, the first time she sat at a distance, and then she sat at even more of a distance. Why did she sit at even more of a distance? Because he was going to die, and therefore she wanted to be further away. You can question what type of mercy it is that she can't, she wants to move away from her son when he's terminally ill. One would expect the mother perhaps to move closer, but I don't want to judge. That's what she's doing. Then we come to Pasuk Yud Zion, which the drusha on which is very well known. 
And it says like this, Hashem heard the voice of the lad. And the angel of Elohim called to Hagar from heaven. He said to her, What is it with you, Hagar? Don't be afraid. Because Hashem has heard the voice of the lad, where he is there. So let's start with Rashi on the words, Hashem heard the voice of the lad. Now, by the way, if it is correct in our text that it's et kol hanaar, then it's referring to the kol hanaar at the beginning of the pasuk. et kol hanaar. It is suggested that it's a ta'ud sofer, it's a scribal error, and it should say el kol hanaar, one letter difference. Instead of et, should be el, in which case Rashi is referring to the el kol hanaar at the end of the pasuk. Doesn't make a huge difference, not that I can see. But let's go with et kol hanaar. Says Rashi, mikan the prayer of an ill person is more beautiful, literally. It's nicer than the prayer of others on the ill person's behalf. And that is uh, put first to be accepted. So if you've got an ill person and a person visiting them, even though the person visiting them, the person doing Bikr Cholim, part of the mitzvah Bikr Cholim is to pray for the health of the ill person. Nevertheless, the prayer of the ill person themselves is more acceptable. It sort of gets there first. Um, the Gemara also says, Ein chavush asurin. A prisoner cannot uh, redeem themselves from prison. In other words, you need somebody else to help you uh, to get out of times of trouble uh, by praying. So that seems to be a contradiction. But maybe the answer is, in general, in terms of giving chizuk, you need another person to give you chizuk if you're in a bad way. But davening, if the person who's actually in the trouble can daven, sometimes they're not able to because of the situation, but if they can daven, then their prayer is more, is heard first before the person davening for them. How does Rashi learn that from here? Well, why does the Torah say, Why didn't just say, or Hashem responded? Or just go straight to Yikram Alech Elohim. Who else, whom else could Hashem hear the voice of? It could be Hagar, because on why, how do we know that Hagar had a voice? Exactly. The previous passage says, So she's lifting up her voice. She is davening. And yet the Torah says, Hashem heard the boy's prayer. So that tells you, or, or Rashi learns from that, that we can't refer to the Torah, and I think really Rashi is answering the classic question of why do we need et kol hana'ar at all? Why do we need that kol hana'ar, especially when it's twice in the same pasuk? So that's the answer. Well, I guess it's even better, even bigger, because Ishmael doesn't really doesn't say that Ishmael ever, ever raises his voice, does it? Until now. True, true. It's almost even a greater question. Yeah, so it's telling you that Ishmael did raise his voice, and in effect more effectively than his mother. Well, that's another question. If yes. You had this... Um, from Rebbe Obro a few weeks ago when we were at Parashat Vayera. I was waiting for us to read uh, the Torah. Okay, yes. And he says, it seems like there's a stirrup on Rashi. We can't say that. Because, we can't say it as a question. As a question. Because if we just say that she strayed yeah. and she went into the idol worship, what does it mean she prayed to Hashem now? If, didn't we say that if she believes in idols? Right, what's, what's this? Unless you say, um, means that she did Teshuvah. Maybe that is a... Is a well, funny you should say that because I'm going to come to something similar in a moment. Is that what Rabbi Yosef said? He didn't know what the answer because it seems. 
Well, um, hold that thought. So we now come on to the next Rashi, which, as I say, is well known. It's often Darshan, especially when we relate to issues of Teshuvah, uh, especially towards Yom and Narayim. And it says like this, Hushan, where the Hashem has listened to the voice of a lad where he is there. Now, I should say straight away, Rashi is going to give a drasha because these words are redundant. Hashem listened to the voice of a lad where he is. Where else is Hashem going to listen to him? Hashem listened to the voice of a lad when on the moon. Well, the lad is not on the moon. So it's obvious that Hashem is listening to the voice of the lad where he is there. So it's really quite straightforward to say, what is bothering Rashi in this passage? It's those words. So Rashi answers as follows. Lefi ma'asim shahu ose achshav hu nidon. According to the deeds that he is doing now, he is judged, and he is not judged based on what he's going to do in the future. In other words, Ba'asher Husham is understood as where he is, not in place, but in time, where he is now. That's how he is judged. Hashem has heard him where he is now, and not on what he's going to do, and not on what his descendants are going to do. And that's what we go on with the story. Because the angels, the ministering angels, were accusing the Omrim, and they were saying, somebody whose descendants are going to kill your children with thirst, you're going to raise up a well for him. That's what happens. So what happens next is Hagar's eyes are opened and she sees a well of water and she gets the water and she saves the life of Ishmael and everyone's happy. Well, not everyone's happy because the angels aren't happy because the angels say in the future, the descendants of Ishmael, identified as the Arabs, are going to cause the Bnei Israel to die dafka with thirst. So we'll come back to, there's a lot of questions that we're going to come back to. So, and Hashem replied, Achshav Mahu, Sadik or Rasha. Right now, what is he? Is he a Sadik or is he a Rasha? On Rulo, they said to him, the angels had to acknowledge that right now, Husham, which we now understand means where he is in time, Sadik, he's a Sadik. Omar Lahem, he said to them, Lafi Ma'asav shall Achshav Ani Dono. According to the deeds that he's doing now, I judge him. And right now he's a tzaddik, so don't tell me what's going to happen in the future. That's not relevant to how I judge him now. Zehu, and that's what's meant by sham, where he is there, i.e. where he is now. Okay, there's a lot of questions I'm going to come back to, but I'm going to finish the Rashi now, because the next thing Rashi is going to do, at some little bit of length, is tell the story of when the descendants of Yishmael tried to kill the descendants of uh, Bnei Israel with thirst. So Rashi now continues the Midrash to answer that question. And he says, When or where did he kill the Jews with thirst? When Nebuchadnezzar exiled them. Now we quote a Pasuk in Yeshaya, or a little bit of Tupesukim, which is a, understood as a prophecy referring obliquely to an event that's going to happen in the time of Galut Bayit Rishon, at the end of Bayit Rishon, when Nebuchadnezzar takes them away into exile. And the Pasuk says, Masa Ba'arav, there was a journey in the Arab lands. And the next Pasuk says, Likrot Hamat Mayim, towards the thirsty, they brought water, or they, they needed water, but they didn't actually get it. 
So what do these uh, obscure psukim refer to? The following incident. When they, the Babylonians, taking the exiles from Israel to Babylon, when they were passing by the Arabs, Hayu Yisrael Omrim the Jews said to their captors, please, lead us past our, the children of our uncle Yishmael, and they will have mercy on us because they're related. And the pastor goes on to say, now, uh, it says in the read, text that I'm reading, but it doesn't say in all texts. Don't read it as but read it as meaning uncles. Now, um, the simple shot of it's a name, the way of it's a place or it's a tribe. And then, according to what I'm reading here, then the Rashi says we can have a sort of a, a rabbinic play on words that when it says Dadanim, it alludes to the word Dodim. In fact, if you look at Rashi on that pasuk in Yeshaya, he doesn't say that. He says Dadanim means Dodim. It's not an allusion, it's not a remez, it's the word. So that Alti Kri really shouldn't belong here. Anyway, so there's a clue in the pasuk, either directly or indirectly, that the Jews wanted to go by that near to their uncle. Um, and then what happened? These people, the Arabs, came out to greet them. And they brought them to them meat, the dag maluach, and fish, both salted. And when you eat the salty food, you get very thirsty. And inflated um, water flasks. And they, were, they, they eat the salty food, they're thirsty, and then they think that these inflated water flasks are full of water. And they put them into their mouths, and they opened it, but the, the water flasks were in fact empty of water. And the air entered into their body and they died. Not quite sure exactly of the uh, metabological, meta, meta, whatever, the medical basis there of exactly how it is that water goes in and they die, but that's what happened. So that second part is explaining the first part. When is it that the descendants of Ishmael are going to kill the Jews by thirst? Okay, few things to say on this very well-known but slightly enigmatic section. There's a lot to say, and I'll just say a little bit. One of the things that's often said is this seems to be a contradiction to what Rashi and the Gemara say about a ben sore or more. So if we jump to Parshas Kiseitse, we find that a ben sore omara, translated as a stubborn and rebellious son, has, as Chazal explained, stolen from his father a considerable quantity of meat and eaten it, and a considerable quantity of wine and drunken it. And he is, under some circumstances, put to death. Uh, it's worth pointing out that the Gemara brings an opinion that says it never happened because the actual circumstances are so limited um, and the age at which he is is only a three-month window in his maturity and he has to do exactly this to the meat and exactly this to the wine that, according to one opinion of the Gemara, it never happened. So we, uh, why do we have it there in the Torah? You learn about it, you expound about it, and you receive a reward for doing so. But one of the things that we say is the reason he's put to death which is a pretty serious punishment for stealing and eating meat and stealing and drinking wine is because if he, he's on the path to something much worse. 
if he's already a glutton and a drunkard, he's going to want to eat and want to drink, and he's going to run out of meat and run out of wine, and he's going to kill people to get money to, as we would now say, to feed his addiction. So, and Rashi says explicitly, I'll shame Sofo because of what's going to happen in the end. He is put to death. And yet here, Yishmael is not put to death, precisely, even though things are bad, things are going to happen in the end. So I think there's at least three answers that I saw. Number one is actually quite an obvious answer, which, which raises other questions, is Yishmael is not in the future going to kill people with thirst. His descendants might, but he's not. And according to that idea, when Hashem says to the angels, um, what, right, what is he now, Sadiq or Russia? That's part of the question is, is he the sort of person who's going to do this? Or is it somebody else who happens to be his descendant who's going to do this? Answer number two, there's a big difference between him and the Ben Sora Omara, in that the Ben Sora Omara has done something. He's actually started on his life of crime. And the uh, Yishmael has not done anything. You might think he has done something. We'll come back to that in a minute. But right now, as, uh, as the story testifies, he hasn't done anything. So he, uh, it, 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 he's a very different case from the Ben Amara because we're judging him on the future, but in extrapolating from what he's doing now. Whereas in the case of Ishmael, we're judging him on now because he's not doing anything at all, which is going to lead to the future. Third possibility is saying that we're judging him mida kemeneged mida. So in terms of the crime, sorry, this really relates to a different crime. No, okay, let me leave that. So I've given you two answers for that, Sarabara. Let me ask now another question, another question. So Hashem says, is he a tzaddik or a Russia? And the answer is he's a tzaddik. He's the greatest guy, he's a tzaddik. Is this perhaps any relation to the Ishmael about whom we learnt in Pasuk Tet? The Teirah Sarah et Ben Hagah HaMitzrit al-Shel Yaudel Abraham Metzachek. And Rashi says, what does Metzachek mean? Oh, only minor things like idolatry, immorality, and murder. Rashi said that on the explaining the word Metzachek. And then he went on to say that he tried to kill um, Yitzchak and to say, I was only joking. So how can this person be described as a tzaddik? So two answers I saw to that. So one is, Hashem punishes midah connected midah. So the guy's dying of thirst. Another answer. The Mishmael is dying of thirst. So the angels say that in terms of the crime of making somebody thirsty, his descendants are going to make somebody thirsty. But Hashem says, right now, has he made anyone thirsty? Has he killed anyone with thirst? Answer no. So because Hashem punishes Midah, if he were to die of thirst, that would only be just if he, as in fair, if he had committed the crime of killing people by thirst. And right now he hasn't done that. Aye, he's an idolater and he's a murderer, but he hasn't killed anyone by thirst. So because of this idea of Midikin and Gemida, which is very important in understanding how Hashem, how Hashem works and how Hashem's justice is carried out in terms of the, the crime of killing people by thirst, which would necessitate the punishment of dying by thirst, he is a tzaddik in that respect. But another answer, which I think is very nice, which takes us right back to what you said a little while ago, is he's done something, he's done something different. What's he done? He has davened. Because we know he's davened, because that's what Rashi said at the beginning of Yudzayin, he's done teshuva. So certainly when you daven, you are doing teshuva on the crime of, of idolatry, because you're davening to Hashem, you're accepting Hashem's malchut. Um, 
his rulership of the world. And by the extension, we can say he's done teshuva for other things as well. So that's how Hashem can say he's a tzaddik. Even though he wasn't a tzaddik two minutes ago, right now he is a tzaddik. Because right now he's calling out to Hashem. Hashem's hearing his voice. He's calling out in prayer. That's called doing teshuva. Okay, so uh, there's lots more to say on that, but I thought that was a, a few things of interest. So what happens next? Uh, Rashi on Yudhet has, no, sorry, Rashi on Yudhet has nothing to say, so we will read it nevertheless. Kumi says the angel to Hagar, Kumi se'i et ana'ar, lift up, get up, lift up the lad, the hachaziki et yodeich, and take hold with your hand, though with him, ki legoi gadol asimeno, for a great nation I will um, make him, I'll make him into a great nation. And by the way, there is one more thing I want to say about the, the angels accusing him. So another answer to the Ben Sora Mora contra apparent contradiction is why should um, maybe, maybe just like the Ben Sora Mora is killed because of what he's going to do in the future, maybe Ishmael should be killed because of what he's doing in the future. And Rashi's saying not, but maybe that would be our starting point based on the example of the Ben Sora Mora. To which one can say the issue is not whether he should be killed or not. If you look at Rashi very carefully, the Rashi says that the angels are accusing and they're saying, Misha atid ata ma'ale lo be'er. This person whose descendants are going to cause the Jews to die of thirst, you are going to perform a miracle for? Question mark. You're going to raise up a well miraculously. That, the angels say, is not fair. So they're not, according to this, they're not saying he should be killed, which would be a contradiction. Uh, and Hashem saying, no, he shouldn't be killed which would then make a comparison to the Ben Sora Mora and a question. But rather, that's a whole different question. The angels are saying, should you make a miracle for him to save his life? Let him die naturally. People die naturally. It happens. Why should you make a miracle to go beyond nature and save him? And to that, Hashem says, he is right now, he's a Sadiq. So he deserves a miracle. So on that basis, we've broken the whole connection to the Ben Saramara, which is about should we punish someone by death? This is should we artificially save his life by a miracle? Anyway, the reason I say that now is because in Pasuk Yotet, Hashem opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went, and she filled the flask with water, and she gave water to the lad to drink. And then everything's good. He's, his life is safe. And what happens next? God was with the lad, and he grew, and he dwelt in the desert. Now I'm going to leave Rove Kashat untranslated. Let's see how Rashi translates it. Rove Kashat. Yore chitzim bakeshet, a shooter of arrows with a bow. Then he says the word kashat, al shem haumanot. That is the name of the craft, kamo chamar, like the word chamar, which comes from the word chamor to mean an ass, and a chamar is a donkey driver. Gamal is a camel driver. Sayad is a trapper. So each of these words is a noun, or in the case of Sayad, a verb, which is turned into a profession. And he says, kashat is the same grammatical form. 
It continues, Lefika Hashin Mugdeshet. And therefore, the shin has got a dagesh in. And you'll look, notice that the vowels and the dagesh of kashat are exactly the same as chamal, uh, sorry, chamal, gamal, and sayad. And that's the point Rashi's making. That patach followed by kamats with a dagesh is when a, a, a noun or, or an adjective is turned into a profession. And therefore, the word kashat means someone whose profession involves a bow and arrows which we have a word for in English, and it's an archer. Now, that means Rashi is saying rover means yorech hitzim bekeshet. A rover, rover is a shooter, and a kashat is a archer. They are two descriptions of Yishmael. He's not a shooter of a bow, because that would be keshet. So kashat is an archer. So yore, sorry, rover kashat means shooter, comma, archer doesn't quite work grammatically in English, but that's what it means. So he became um, he became a uh, shooter, comma, archer. Now let's carry on with Rashi. He lived in the desert and he would rob the passers-by. And that's what it says. His hand will be in everything. Back in Peretet Zion, when Hagar ran away before Yishmael was born and an angel appeared to Hagar, it's quite similar to what's just happened now. And she said, the angel said to Hagar, go back, you're gonna have a baby and various things are gonna be described about this child. Yado bakol, his hand will be in everything. Rashi there and Rashi here says that means his nature is to rob people. So that's why he's, his hand's in everything. Why does Rashi have to say this, that he's becoming a professional robber? And the answer perhaps is because of what Rashi just said at the beginning of the verse, that Rav Kashat is not word, one word, but two words to describe his profession. So when it says he became a Rav Kashat, that means he took on the entire characteristic of a thief and a assaulter of people. He was Rav, he was Kashat. Uh, the doubling of the words tells you that we're talking not just about a skill that he had, but the person he became. And therefore Rashi says, that's what he did. And indeed, that's how he's been described. He's been prophesied as Yadoba Kol. That's his nature. So his nature is to molestem et ha obrim. Is that well, like, sorry, because like, if you just say kashat and archer, obviously an archer shoots arrows just by nature, so we don't need to say robert as well. Yeah. I was saying robert and I, I, yes, I think so. I think so. Uh, you're right. They're, they're more or less the same word. They mean the same thing. Um, but, and therefore, the fact that they're double is telling you more. Yeah, if it just said he was an archer, you could just say, you know, in his spare time, he threw arrows. But the, the duplication leads to the next part of Rashi. Pasuk Kaf Aleph. Vayeshev Bamidbar Paran, Fetikach Lo Imo Isha Me'eretz Mitzrayim. He dwelt in the land of Paran, in the desert of Paran, sorry. And she took for him, who, his mother, a wife from the land of Egypt. So Rashi says, from the place where she grew up. It said when Hagar was introduced that she, sorry, that Sarah to her, to Sarah, was an Egyptian maidservant. By the way, the Midrash says that she was Paro's daughter. That when Sarah and Abraham went to Mitzrayim and Sarah was taken, 
the whole, the Avram said, she's his sister and she was taken by Pharaoh and then given back. At that point, Hagar saw that Abraham was the guy to be with and she was prepared to be a maidservant in Abraham's house rather than a princess in um, uh, Pharaoh's house. But even if you put that on one side, we know she was a mitzrit because the passage said that Sarah had a shifchat mitzrit. So why does the Rashi need to say, Dafka, that she went to the place of her growing up? And the answer is because why does the Torah need to say that she took a wife who was Egyptian? Okay, there are a lot of people who are married in the Torah. Um, we never know anything about this wife. We know Yishmael had children, but we don't know anything much about it. So I think we, do we know here their names? Sorry, at the end of Chai Sarah, where we have the descendants of Yishmael. No, no, we don't even name, name his wives. I was thinking where we have in uh, yesterday's Sedra, the descendants of Esau at the end of Pasha of Ayishlach, we know all about his wives. At the end of Chai Sarah, we have a descendants of Hagar, of, of Yishmael, and we don't mention his wives. So the point is, this wife that um, Hagar gets for him has no other mention of the Torah, has no other specific role in the Torah. So why do we need to know she was Egyptian? And the answer is, Rashi says, this is an example of Hagar going back to her roots. Now, I'll say again, I said this last week, when Hagar, according to Rashi, Hagar comes back into the story. Um, at the end of Chai Sora, in Perak Cafe, Yosef Abraham, Yikachi Sha Ushma Keturah, Rashi says, Keturah zu Hagar, benikret Keturah al shem shenaim aseha kekatoret. She's called Keturah because her deeds were as nice as Keturah. And then Rashi says something else, um, which we'll get to in years to come, um, that he praises her very highly. So I just want to point out that Rashi has a little bit of a, a dual understanding of Hagar. She does Teshuva in the end, and she comes back to Abraham according to Rashi, and she's praiseworthy for doing that. However, we've already seen that according to Rashi on Pasuk, um, Yudalad, she goes back to her high idolatry, and Rashi here on Pasuk Kafalaf is she goes back to her roots. And in fact, the next line of Rashi says this even more emphatically. Hainu ta Amre Anshe, Inshe, sorry. This is what people say, it's like a proverb. Zorob Chutra La Avira, throw a stick into the air, Aikare Kai, it will land on its root. Now, what, what does it mean? It means if you throw a stick, if you take, pluck a stick off a tree and you chuck it in the air, it will roll around and come down and it will come down with the root, i.e. the bit was attached to the tree first. That is true, actually, because the bit was attached, oh, I shouldn't say actually, it's true, because the bit that's attached to the tree is thickest and it's heaviest. So uh, unless there's uh, other sort of wind resistance and various other climactic conditions, the heavier part of the stick will be downwards, will pull the rest of it down, and that heavier part of the city will, the bit, will be the thicker bit where it was attached to the tree. So Hagar returns to her roots. When she comes down, she lands on her root. That's why she goes back to Egypt to find the wife for, um, for Ishmael. By the way, there's another point. There's two actual significant things in this passage which leads Rashi to speak like he does. So one we've already said is the fact that it bothers to say that, she's, that the wife is Me'eret Mitzrayim. 
The next thing that the bothers to say is, uh, strangely, in the Chumash, the Tikach Lo, she, his mother, took a wife for him. Most people who get married arrange their own marriages, or the, the, the man in question arranges their own marriage. Um, it is rare that a mother arranges a marriage. But the Torah says, but the mother, Hagar, arranged the marriage. So Rashi says the whole point of this Isha Mitzrit, this um, Egyptian wife, was Dafka because Hagar chose an Egyptian wife. So that is Hagar returning her to her roots. One more thing about the Moshe, of the um, stick going up and coming down. What that means is it starts on the tree. Then it goes through some sort of turbulent process to throw it in the air. And after it's gone through the turbulent process, it goes back to where it came from. It goes back to the, the, the root, goes back to the ground. So what is the turbulent process by Hagar? How do we understand this marshal actually playing out? The turbulent process is going into Avraham's house. She left Egypt. She chose, according to the Midrash, to go into Avraham's house. Without the Midrash, she, she finds a way somehow into Avraham's house. She lives in Avraham's house. She even fathers her mother's, oh, sorry, gives birth to a child of Avraham's. And after all that, she comes back down to earth like the, like the stick. And then she, when she comes back down to earth, she goes back to her roots, as signified by the fact that it's a wife from Mitzrayim, and it's a wife that she chose to get from Mitzrayim. That concludes this section. It's almost like there's a new chapter here. There isn't. The, the Christians who put the chapter divisions in chose not to put one here. But we have a Pasha Petucha, an open end of the line, um, break like a big paragraph break or even a chapter break because the next section which is really a short interlude before we get to the Akeda starts here in Pasuk Kaftet and it says Avimelech and Fichol the chief of his army said El Avraham to Avraham Leimora saying Elokim imacha b'chol asher ata oseh Hashem is with you in all that you do. And then they say, let's make a treaty. Let's make a pact. Rashi says on the words, Elohim imacha. Hashem is with you. Because he saw that he, Abraham, came out from the neighborhood of Saddam in peace. And he fought with the kings and they fell into his hand. And his wife was visited, i.e. she became pregnant and gave birth when he was old. So three things that Abimelech says that gives Abimelech the proof that Elohim Hashem is with you. So why does it, what does it mean by these three things? So the first one, there's, there's at least two ways of understanding it. So he came out from the um, neighborhood of Saddam, Le Shalom, in peace. So one approach is to say, Abraham lived near Saddam. We know Abraham lived near Saddam because when Lot was rescued from Saddam, the angels who rescued Lot told him to go to Abraham, as Rashi explains, told him to go to the mountain. And Rashi explains that means to go to where Abraham is. So Abraham was nearby. Um, and yet, Avram did not suffer from the earthquake, stroke, volcano, stroke, whatever happened to destroy Saddam and the neighboring cities. So that's one idea of he came out in peace. We also know, Rashi said, that Abraham moved from Saddam because the passerby, the passersby stopped passing by because nobody was traveling there anymore. So he was not able to entertain visitors, so he had to move. 
even though he had to give up the, the thing that was giving him um, reward, and even though this wonderful thing he was doing, he had to give up that, he still came out in peace. So the next thing is with the kings who he fought, so that was the battle of the four kings and the five kings, and Abram joined it, and on behalf of the five kings who had been defeated by the four kings, he fought back, and he was able to defeat the four kings. So they were pretty powerful, and he was able to beat them. And the last one is that Sarah had a baby at uh, when Abraham was very old. Now, why does Rashi say this? So it seems to me that Rashi says this in order to explain a particular phrase. Now, maybe my suggestion is weak because it's not the Dibramatka, it's not the opening words of Rashi, but the words are the eight hahi at that time. This is Perak Kavalev. We've known Abraham since Perak Yudbet, and we've seen him do all sorts of wonderful things, and we've seen that Hashem is with him in all sorts of ways. Why the eight hahi at that time does Abimelech come and testify that Hashem is with Abraham? So why is it at that time? So now let's look more carefully at the three things which Rashi mentioned. Um, and in particular, well, you could say the first one is relatively recent. There's been a short passage of time. We, we've talked about this before. The reason that the Rashi said the scoffers uh, he's going to quote the beginning of Toldot, um, suggested that Yitzchak was born from Abimelech, not Abraham, was because the birth of Yitzchak was straight after Abraham spending time with Abimelech, which was straight after the destruction of Saddam. Because according to Rashi, Abraham moved to Gerar immediately after the destruction of Saddam. So the time that um, Abraham came out of Saddam in peace is relatively recently. It's almost contemporary. And that might explain why now, at this point, Abimelech comes and says, I can see Hashem is with you. However, that theory falls down immediately with the next example. Because the next example, the War of the Kings, took place a long time before. It took place before the birth of Yishmael, which we talked about last week as at least 15 years earlier, possibly more. So if the kings falling in the hands of Abraham is a reason that Abimelech sees that Hashem is with him, why is it now at this time? And now we come to the third thing. And the third thing is different because it's very close to miraculous. Now, uh, as we said, for Abraham to have a child um, at a very old age is unlikely. For Sarah to have a child at a very old age is a miracle. And even though I have to say it says Liz Kunav, his old age, perhaps one can refer to her old age as well, or the two of them. So now the most recent thing that's happened to Abraham the most wonderful thing is that he's had a child when he and his wife are at a very old age. That's miraculous. Then Abimelech sees that. And then the other two big things which were significant in the success that Abraham had now turn out retroactively to be understood as miracles because they could have been seen as non-miracles. Okay, so he was lucky in the war. He was lucky not to get hit by the falling sulfur uh, at the destruction of Saddam. But that's not a miracle. Ah, but when you see that he also miraculously is blessed with a child, then Abimelech realizes that all the things that uh, have been so fortunate in Abraham's life are the result of Hashem being with him. And he comes and now at this point and says, listen, he says, listen, in Pasuk Kaf Gimel, and now, make me a promise by God, heina thus, Im tishkorli, if you um, lie to me, ulanini ulanechti, to my son and to my grandson, kechesed asher asiti imacha, like the chesed, the kindness I have done with you, 
you should do with me. And with the land that you dwelt in it, referring to the land of Gerah, where Abimel Abraham had dwelt. So Rashi um, has something to say about Ulanini Ulanechti. Now, Nin in modern Hebrew, actually, I think, is used to mean great grandchild, but that's not what it's used here. It means son here. Um, and so it's Nini is my son, Ulanechti is my grandson. Says Rashi, Ad Khan Ha'av Al Haben. Thus far is the mercy of a father onto a son. In other words, a father cares about their son and one generation further. Why does Rashi say this? Because it's very odd. Well, it raises a question, if you like, two questions, on why does Abimelech say, I want you to make a deal that you won't betray my son, me, my son, or my grandson. The two questions are, why doesn't he go further than a grandson? Or why doesn't he go less far than a grandson? It's a bit odd to say me, my son, my grandson. Because if he means, and forever, why does he say me, my son, my grandson, my great-grandson, my great-great-grandson, and for all generations? If he doesn't want to say Dafka, his grandson, it makes sense to say me, or possibly me and my son, you know, me and the heir. That, that sort of sounds right. But to say me, my son, or my grandson, it raises the question, why thus far and no further? And Rashi answers exactly that. Why thus far and no further? Thus far, up to and including a grandson, because that's how far a father has mercy on his progeny. He thinks two generations ends. So when Abimelech says, I want you to make a pact with me and my descendants, what he means, like a, a, the standard view of descendants, is two generations, my son and my grandson. And that's why the Pasuk says son and grandson, it doesn't say more, it doesn't say less. So he does want to go beyond his own self, and he wants to go as far as a father has mercy, i.e. two generations. And then Rashi says, so the Pasuk says, that Abimelech says, you shall do like the chesed that I did with you. And Rashi says, what's the chesed that he did with him? Um, and this is a good question, because Abimelech hasn't done much chesed with Abraham. Now, it's true that he gave him a present, but he gave him a present for a very particular reason. That uh, was to appease him after the near terrible thing that Abimelech did with his, Abraham's wife. That is not chesed. That is compensation or recompense, or trying to make it up. Chesed is doing something you don't have to do. That's what chesed means. It's going beyond what you're required to do. So the gift to Abraham, the money, was exactly what he was required to do. And Rashi said at the time, it was lefaischa, to appease him. So what other thing did Abimelech do that could be called chesed? So Rashi finds the one other thing that Abimelech did that could be called chesed. Namely, after Abimelech gave Sarah back to Abraham. He said, Behold, my land is um, in front of you. You can dwell there wherever you want. And maybe Rashi is hinting, but this is in contradistinction to Paro. Rashi made this point when Abimelech said this, that when Paro did a similar thing, he took Sarah and then gave her back. And then he said, get out. Whereas Abimelech says, stay as long as you want. And indeed, Abraham stayed there a long time, as Rashi will say in a little time. Okay, we've just got a few minutes left, and we've got quite a few pasukim with no Rashi. So let's go through them. So we're up to Kafkim. Kafdalad. Abraham Abraham said, "I will swear." Abraham et al odot be'er Abimelech. 
and I'll leave the word hokia untranslated until Rashi will translate it for us. Rashi says, He argued with him about this. Now, the problem is, could be translated in two ways. It could be he argued, or it could be he rebuked. Rashi says it means argued. Now, by the way, that means Rashi has to have a slightly less normative translation of the word et. What is the conjunction that goes with argued. He argued with Abimelech. Now the word at, sorry, et, can mean with. Uh, this is the name of the children of Israel who came with to Egypt, with Yaakov. So it has got a secondary meaning. Normally it means, well, it's whether well, you don't translate in English, but it identifies the direct object. And that incidentally is how the Targum has it. But Okach Abraham Yat Abimelech. Yat means is the direct equivalent of et, as in object. And right, uh, our uncle understands Ocha as Abraham rebuked direct object Abimelech. That's what that et would mean. But if Abraham, uh, sorry, if Rashi thinks it means he argued, which is the other, the word Hochia could actually mean both. That's the problem. And Rashi has to help us understand which one it is. So he must be understanding et Abimelech as with Abimelech. So why does he say it means he argued? So a simple answer is it's not derecheret to rebuke a king. He can argue with a king um, about, continues the passage, about the well of water which the servants of Imelech had stolen. But it, Abraham, even though he was Nasi Elohim, he would not, it would be a chutzpah for him to argue with Abimelech, who is a king, it's right, to rebuke Abimelech, to tell Abimelech off. That's too much chutzpah. To argue with Abimelech because his servants have done something wrong, that he does does, but he doesn't rebuke him. And Rashi says, therefore, because we wouldn't have been sure, means he argued. So um, let's just do the next few pasukim, just for completeness, to set it up for next time. Abimelech said, I don't know who has done this thing. And you didn't tell me. And I didn't hear anything about it until today. Abraham took um, uh, sheep and, and cattle and he gave them to Abimelech and the two of them made a covenant Abraham stood seven sheep of the flock by themselves what Abimelech said what are these seven sheep these seven sheep, which you have stood by themselves. And we will stop there because in Pasuk Lamad, Rashi picks up the thread, and we will see that in Yitz Hashem next week. So we will stop there. Thank, Thank you very much. much. Bye. Thank you. Thank you.